don't make him angry. You wouldn't like him when he's angry. William of Normandy's preparations for the invasion of England. On the 5th of January, 1066, King Edward the Confessor died. On the 6th of January, King Edward is buried and Harold Godwinson is crowned king. That gap of a day tells us that there was no doubt in people's mind in England who was going to become the king. But it also means that when the news reached William, Duke of Normandy, about what had happened, the news would have arrived together. He would have got both of those pieces of news at the same time, that the king was dead and there was a new king, and it wasn't him. We know that he received the news when he was out hunting, and we know that he became angry. He was so angry that he didn't speak to his companions. He rode off, and he started obsessively fastening and unfastening his cloak and pulling at the seams of the material. We don't know how long he sat and brooded on what had happened, but we do know that he started to pull together a plan. Most other people, when they're angry, tend to lash out. William didn't. William planned. William thought. And this is really the key thing. To understand why the invasion of 1066 was successful, when so many others before and since failed, you need to understand what William did to prepare. Firstly, one of the concerns that anybody has to have when they're getting involved in a foreign military adventure is making sure that their home base is safe, is secure. William was very happy with that. He'd been a close friend of the French king. Remember, the Dukes of Normandy are nominally subject to the orders of the king, but really they're kind of off on their own, able to do their own kind of thing. But he'd been friends with the previous king. He was also well known to the new king, who was only a young child. So he's fairly secure that the new king isn't going to do anything to Normandy while he's away. His biggest rival in northern France has always been the Count of Anjou. Well, he doesn't have to worry about Anjou at this point, because there's a civil war. Not only that, he's also conquered an area of France called Maine, which provides a very neat little buffer zone for him between Normandy and Anjou. Therefore, he doesn't need to worry about anybody sort of sneaking up behind him and taking Normandy while his attention is focused on England. The next thing he does is he starts recruiting. And to start with, this is quite slow. He sends out word to his Norman barons that he will reward them with land and with titles in England if they come with him. To start with, there aren't a lot of people willing to sign up. To counter this, William does two things. First, he dips into his coffers and he pulls out money. And he uses the money to start hiring mercenaries. Now, mercenaries are people who fight for pay. They fight for the highest bidder. It is an old profession. It's been around since the days of the, the Greek hoplites in the Roman Empire. The key thing about mercenaries is this. You cannot count on their loyalty. So that's why a lot of kings and potentates and princes don't like to use them. You cannot count on their loyalty, but you can count on their expertise. They fight for a living. That means they fight all the time. 
That means they are skilled warriors. And also, if you're wanting to become a successful mercenary, you have to survive. You have to live. You have to survive the battles. That means you have to be good. So mercenaries provide a very effective core for William to build the rest of his army around. But where is the rest of the army going to come from? This is an interesting little bit of the story, because how you approach it is going to depend very much on your opinion of what William was actually like. Now remember, we are slightly at a loss here when it comes to sources. We have the work of William of Poitiers, we have the work of Odric Vitalis, and we have uh, the work of Emma of Normandy. All of these things give us some sort of a clue towards what this man was like, but you have to make your own mind up based on his actions. So the actions are very simple. He sends his closest spiritual advisor, Lanfranc, to talk to the Pope. The case that Lanfranc puts to the Pope is simple. The English church is corrupt, and it needs to be cleaned up. It needs to be dealt with, and the man to do that is William. Secondly, Harold swore an oath. Now, we've talked about this before, the oath of 1064 that William says Harold swore on the bones of a saint. The oath of fealty, the oath of loyalty, the oath in which Harold Godwinson allegedly recognised William's claim to the throne and swore to support it. William says to the Pope through Lanfranc, Harold is an oath-breaker. He broke the oath he swore before God. Now, why William said this to the Pope, why William sent Lanfranc to the Pope, is down to your reading of the man. Either he sent it because he's a political animal and he wants the support of the Pope in order to broaden the scope of what he's doing. So it's not just a smash and grab attempt on the throne of England. It's an actual holy war, a holy war with a decent motive behind it. Or he's doing it because he honestly believes it. He honestly believes that Harold has broken his word before God. And he honestly believes that the English church is corrupt and needs to be fixed. Which way you go on that is entirely down to you. I personally tend to believe that it was probably more the latter than the former. William was a deeply religious man. We know this. We know that on his deathbed he was very concerned about the various sins that he had committed. And he never said that this was one of them. He listed a long list of the things he did wrong. Misleading the Pope, you would imagine, would be quite high on the list had he done it. But he never said so. And he does reform the Church of England when he arrives. He puts Lanfranc in as Archbishop of Canterbury. And we'll talk later about the changes to monasticism and the organisation of the Church. So I tend to believe that it is probably genuine. But it doesn't really matter. The reason it doesn't matter is that because whether it's done for political reasons or whether it's done for religious reasons, either way, the Pope agrees. And he gives William the papal banner. He gives him his blessing. And this war against Harold becomes a crusade. It becomes a holy war fought under the banner of the Pope and the Catholic Church. And being told that, 
an awful lot of people who wouldn't sign up with William before do so now. Because if you fight a holy war, a couple of things will happen. First off, there is no sin in killing anybody. And secondly, you can expiate your sins. You can gain forgiveness from God by going and killing the unblessed. Add to that the promise of riches and land and titles, and you can see why an awful lot of William's men suddenly joined up and went to help. The next set of preparations he made were purely practical. Having got this army together, he then has to have a look at how he's going to get them across the sea. Because, don't forget, England is an island. Actually, getting across the Channel has always been the biggest problem facing any likely invader. In order to do this, William builds a fleet of boats, flat-bottomed. And the reason they're flat-bottomed is that they can carry his secret weapon, his cavalry. Six thousand horses are prepared and loaded on to these flat-bottomed boats. Six thousand, because that's three for every night. The general cavalry tactics used by the Normans allow them to do a charge with one horse, and then while that one is being rested, use a second horse, and then a third. So basically the knight can keep fighting and the horses are refreshed and that way you get cavalry which can work for an entire day of a battle. Of course, flat-bottomed boats cause you a few problems. They're not going to deal well with choppy seas. And so, to that end, that is why William moves his boats from where they are built. They were originally constructed near the mouth of the River Dives, and he moves them instead to the River Somme near Saint-Valéry, making it a very short journey across the channel, only 20 miles. Having moved the ships and got everything ready, William also ensured that his men were well fed and well cared for while they're waiting on the other side of the channel. This again is important to ensure that they are ready. Part of this you've got to figure in is the waiting game. He's sitting and waiting for the weather to be good, yes. But also, the longer he waits, the longer King Harold is having to keep his feared activated. Now remember, the feared are the peasant soldiers of England. They can only serve 60 days a year. That's all they can be required to serve. And the longer William waits, the longer they are going to have to wait themselves. The more of their time is going to be used up until eventually Harold is going to have to let them go. Also, the time is ticking down towards the harvest, which has two advantages for William. Firstly, it means that there's going to be food for his men to eat. And secondly, Harold cannot keep the feared away from the fields. He's going to have to release them to get the harvest in. William has about 8,000 men ready to go across in these boats. But they're not the only things he puts in the boats. We've already discussed the horses. There's also a lot of supplies, food, water, a large number of barrels of wine, which I think is quite a nice thing to take to make sure your men are ready and equipped for a battle. But the other thing he puts in is flat pack castles. These castles are basically your keep, your bog standard Motten Bailey keep, which can be erected very quickly because they can just be pulled out like a wardrobe from Ikea and slapped up very fast. That overcomes one of the major issues of any form of amphibious landing, any form of invasion from sea. It's quite easy for you to be defeated on that bridgehead, that one area, and pushed back into the sea. 
By taking a flat pack castle with him, William is in a position where he can immediately fortify his landing area and get himself ready for the attack. And that's exactly what they did. As soon as they land on the 28th of September at Pevensey, William's men erect the flat pack structures. They now have a defensible landing position, and that makes it very, very difficult for William to be thrown back into the sea. So there you have it. A very simple overview of the preparations that William makes for his invasion. What you have to think to yourself is this. Which of those are the most important? Which of those are the ones that actually help ensure his success? Is it the securing his base in France? Is it recruitment and getting the army together? Is it getting the support from the Pope? Is it the equipment and equipping everything? There are two more things just to throw in here that, broadly speaking, come under the heading of preparation, although they're not part of specific preparation for the invasion. And that's the kind of training that these knights underwent. Remember, when we're talking about sticking these 6,000 horses on the boats, we're not just talking about your everyday nag. We're not even talking about a racehorse. We're talking about a trained war horse. A horse that will run into battle. A horse that will bite and kick and attack people. We are talking about a very well-trained military weapon. And this concept of training is something you need to remember. Norman knights, remember, are trained from a very young age. Sometimes as often as three, they're trained with toy swords and toy horses and things like that. They go through a, a squire, a novicehood, learning to be a knight before they're finally knighted and given their coat of arms and all the rest of the accoutrements of being a Norman knight. But more importantly, they train in groups of ten called a, a Conroy. And that's like a, a section in the modern British army. And you get two sections together, make a unit, and then you've got a platoon. And then you can build up an effective force very quickly. But each component part of that force is trained together and used to working together. So in the heat of battle, they will never lose track of each other. They will never lose sight of what they are supposed to be doing. There's also the Gonfanon system. Now, if you remember, this is the idea of the signal flags that are used. And that allows William to send one part of his army to do one thing, another part of his army to do another thing, another part to hold back. It allows William to very quickly and very effectively pass messages from one side of the army to the other. Command and control. What I need you to understand is that the Norman force is quite professional. It's well trained, it's well equipped, and it's well prepared. So, think about those preparations. Which of them are most important in helping William secure victory? And then, when we come to the Battle of Hastings, you need to say to yourself, would the Battle of Hastings have worked out differently had William not done those preparations. Because each of the things he's done there does feed into the events of that day on the 14th of October. The last thing I'd say to you is this. History's not like science, as a general rule. 
The joy of science is that experiments are repeatable. You can run the same experiment over and over again and you can change variables and see what happens. As a general rule of thumb, you can't rerun history. But in 1066, there are two invasions. There is the invasion by William in the south and there is the invasion by Harold Hadrada in the north. And what I would say to you is this. One of those invasions is planned and prepared and the other isn't. And one of those invasions is successful and the other isn't. Thank you very much for listening. Good luck in your exams.